Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Zivi Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This 30-minute podcast features a new author interviewed by me every single day, 365 days a year for about 30 minutes. I am also the publisher for Zibby Books, which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now. And you can check it out on zibbybooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zibby Mag, where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zibbymag.com. We have classes at zibbyclasses.com. And I recently opened a bookstore in LA called Zibby's Bookshop at 1113 Montana Avenue at 11th Street in San Monica. I hope that you are able to enjoy some of our other offerings. But this here podcast is the basis of all of it and started in 2018. And no matter what I do, this is basically my favorite thing. Enjoy. Harrison Scott Key is the author of How to Stay Married, which if anyone who follows me on Instagram knows, I have recommended this book like a hundred times. Okay. Well, I don't know, maybe like three times, but I loved it and have been shouting it from the rooftops in many different venues. Harrison Scott Key is the author of How to Stay Married, Congratulations, Who Are You Again? and The World's Largest Man, winner of the Thurber Prize for American Humor. His first TEDx talk went viral among a certain demographic. If you'd like Harrison to speak at your event, he will probably do it in exchange for money. Just ask him. 
Harrison's humor and nonfiction have appeared in the best American travel writing, Oxford American, Outside, The New York Times, The Bitter Southerner, McSweeney's Internet Tendency, Town and Country, The Mockingbird, Salon, Savannah Magazine, Reader's Digest, Image, Southern Living, Gulf Coast, and Creative Nonfiction, as well as a number of magazines that don't pay you anything at all, not even a little. But it was cool because people who work at magazines are mostly poor, and helping the poor is a priority for Harrison should he come under scrutiny. Harrison has lectured, talked, read, performed, etc. around the world at book festivals, bookstores, conferences for design, writing, religion, medicine, real estate, and education, variety shows, radio shows and universities, as well as one retirement community whose members were perfectly courteous up until the end. He has also performed stand-up comedy at venues around the U.S. if you include three or four different cities to be around the U.S. <laughs> He holds an MFA in creative nonfiction and a PhD in playwriting and has worked at SCAD for quite literally thousands of years, where he's held appointments as chair of liberal arts, professor of English, professor of writing, and executive dean. He lives in Savannah, Georgia with three children and one wife. Welcome, Harrison. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss how to stay married, the most insane love story ever told. Well, thanks for having me. We had a big book launch just last night, so I'm still recovering from that. (laughs) Okay. I have to tell you, this book was so amazing. I had to stop doing the things I was supposed to do in my life so I could read this. I was like, no, no, no. I know we're supposed to see these friends, but can we just, I need like 20 minutes here and I need 20 minutes (laughs) there. I could not put it down. It's so good. I've never read anything like it from a male point of view about a relationship it was so good. Congratulations. I loved it. And you're so funny. Thank you. You're so sweet. No, I mean it. No one shows all those inside things about a marriage and you were so open and yet so funny. Anyway, I don't know. Bravo. Why don't you tell listeners a little bit about your book, what it's about, the love story that you reference and sort of how you've decided to write it as a book. And then even the chapter by your wife, which I thought was so interesting that you put in the end, like it was so, this whole thing was so good. Okay. Tell me the whole story. So in 2017, my wife sat me down. She sent me an email one day at work and she said, can we talk when the girls get home? I mean, when the girls go to bed tonight, we have three daughters. At the time we'd been married about 14 years. And she said, when the girls go to sleep tonight, can we talk? And my wife never sends emails like that. I mean, it's the worst kind of email you can get because it's like, why is she emailing me? And it just felt so strange. Immediately, my heart sank. I was like, something is going on. And I, so I you know, emailed her back. I'm like, sure. Like, of course we can talk. Like, what do you want to talk about? Like, it could be anything. It could be she, you know, found a job somewhere. She... Maybe something bad. Maybe she had wanted to confess that, you know, she had a pill addiction or she was an alcoholic or that she really wanted to move or whatever. It just, it was very heavy. And that night after the girls went to sleep, she sat me down and she said, I want a divorce. And I said, okay, um, why? And she said, I'm in love with someone else. And I said, who? And she told me, and this the the name that she told me was a friend of mine, one of our former next door neighbors. So in that moment, everything that I had known about my life changed. It had already changed. I didn't know that it had changed until that moment. And everything exploded. And the way I describe it to people is this, it seems like a memoir about marriage or a memoir about my wife's affair. But what it really is, is like a 
It's really a detective novel. And there's a murder at the beginning, just like there is in a detective novel. And what was murdered was my marriage. And so the entire book is me trying to figure out who killed this thing and is it dead yet? Can it be brought back to life? And so the whole action of the story is me trying to learn, okay, how did this happen? How did she fall in love with this guy? What what were they keeping secret from me? What did I not see that was so obvious, just so obvious? And so it is, there's so many twists and turns, as you know, it's like, it's like Days of Our Lives, but written by Seinfeld and, you know, Larry David. It's this weird, so many twists and turns, like a this torrid love affair. I mean, the guy, the other man who in the book I call Chad, that's not his real name. He's really an offstage character. It, there's nothing salacious in this book. There are no, like, he doesn't really figure into the action. He's always referenced offstage, almost like in, you know, Shakespeare. He's something that happens offstage. Uh, this is really about her and me. Uh, a lot of people have asked me, you know, like, you know, why would you write this book that's so candid about your wife's affair and you're still married? But saying the book is about my wife's affair is sort of like saying the movie Jaws is about marine biology. It's not like that at all. It's really an investigation into how our marriage died, who killed it, who's responsible, is it her, is it me, is it both of us? And it's answering all of those questions. And of course, there's a happy ending. It's uh, There's more than just one revelation in the book, as you know, and I won't give it away for listeners, but there's a happy ending in the sense of there's reconciliation. And there's a, I like to tell people, it's sort of like a Europe in World War One and World War Two, And, you know, I really thought I was England and my wife was Germany, you know, and I was, she had done this terrible thing and that she deserved, you know, punishment. And that's how it feels when you find out that you've been betrayed. And then I realized like, and there was a fragile piece, uh, sort of like at the end of the First World War. But then some terrible things happened again. And there was a whole other world war. Uh, and that also is described in the book. And I realized that it wasn't that I was England and my wife was Germany. It's more that I was England and my ego was Germany. Mm. My ego was the real enemy here. And my wife was maybe my wife was France. I don't know. <laughs> she was she was a player in this, but it wasn't it was this is not a book about her villainy. And I really needed help and to extend this really weird metaphor, it's like our friends and family and community, our church all were like America, sort of coming in to help when I needed it most. And so that's the story of the book. Oh my gosh. Well, at the end of the book, you give just, and not I'm not giving anything away, but like a little, almost like an essay, you could like tear it out and stuff it in your back pocket of like how to keep, you know, what to take away for your own marriage, you know, like what should we remember here, which was useful because of course, after you do this deep dive into something that is like every relationship is a living, breathing thing. What it comes down to the most is sort of what we come into our relationships with, right? How can any, it's like a miracle, any relationship ever works to be honest, right? Isn't it? <laughs> you know, in some, in some ways, like, a, you know, I'm not the first person to say this, but I really believe that you marry the wrong person. Everybody marries the wrong person because even if you're soulmates, at the beginning. And most people feel that way. That's why they get married. You feel like you found your soulmate. But as a wiser man once said, my wife has been married to five people and they're all me because <laughs> you change so much. And um, 
you know, I liken it to sort of when you get married, it's a little bit like buying a car. It looks, it's a new car. It's so beautiful. Nothing ever will go wrong with it, but it's a lemon. It's always a lemon because there are things under the hood and not only for for them, but for you, you're their car, you're their brand new car. And there's things under your hood that are so effed up and nobody <laughs> knows. And you can't even find out what they are until you're married. It's like the marriage is how you discover what's really inside you, the trauma, the um, the biases, the way like I, you know, the way that your your brain is messed up, the way the expectations you have that aren't right, all the really weird habits you bring into marriage because of how you saw your parents be married, all that stuff. It only comes out when you're married and it comes out over time and you change and you evolve. So, yeah, it's it's a shock that you know, everybody says, oh, you know, it's crazy that 50 percent of marriages end in divorce. And I'm shocked that 50 percent of marriages don't, <laughs> you know, like that's the real shock to me when you really think about it. I was really interested in your whole childhood and how your parents, which you also sort of look into and debate if they're well-suited and how their relationship came to be. They seem so different. And how you were this bookish kid with all these like lofty literary goals, sort of like a fish out of water where you had grown up and how you say this in a much more funny, articulate way, of course, but which I really enjoyed reading, but how you take sort of even how you grow up and the training you have and how you feel about your interests. Like, how do you think you got yourself like onto the writing path? Because at times reading your story, it feels very unlikely that this is where it would end up. And when you say this is where it would end up, what do you mean? With you becoming like a really successful author. Oh, right. <laughs> well, in some ways, so that's really the whole story of my second book, which came out about five years ago. It's called Congratulations, Who Are You Again? And it's about sort of the American dream and how do you find out what you're good at and who you are and what your calling is. I never really, I mean, the short answer is I was always a writer even when I didn't think that I was. I was writing and telling stories from a very young age. I'm from the South, I'm from Mississippi, and uh, storytelling and you know, just sitting on the front porch and sitting at the dinner table and telling hunting stories and fishing stories and stories about this person and that person. It's just such a part of that culture. And so I grew up with that. And I also grew up reading. We had nothing to do out in the country, nothing. We had no cable. We had three channels. We lived 15 miles from the nearest grocery store. I mean, we were out in the middle of nowhere. And so books were, for me, that was my, that was the original mobile technology. That was the thing that you could have and take anywhere, sort of like a, a portal to any dimension, any place in time. So I just fell in love with stories and I started writing from a young age. I wrote letters. Every, I mean, like summer camp, I would fall in love with 15 different girls at summer camp and I would write letters to all of them and I would continue writing letters after summer camp every year. I wrote letters, uh, which is, this is really odd. I mean, my brother was, a, my older brother was a, you know, a football player, a big hunter. My dad was a, a big sportsman. He was a football coach and I played sports and I did all that stuff, but I was so drawn to, to literature and to reading. I wrote letters to my grandmother, like she lived about three hours away. I wrote letters to her. She wrote letters to me. And I just didn't think anything about it. It was just how I expressed myself and how, and I just love spending time that way. And so when I got to college, it was very strange. I did not major in English. You would, you would assume that I would, but 
in my experience, English majors were all girls who liked Jane Austen. That was it. And I didn't, that just wasn't my vibe. And so philosophy is is like English majors for boys. That's what philosophy is. So I was like, well, I'll major in philosophy because you, you're all, you're doing the same thing. You're reading lots of old stuff and they're talking <laughs> about it and writing about it. And so I studied philosophy. I thought I was an actor, went to grad school for that. And I did stand up for a little while. And the way I got back into writing was this was before the internet where you could just find monologues, all the monologues you wanted for auditions up and down all day long. But back then you had to write your own monologues or find them in books. And so I started writing my own audition monologues and I found that that was so much fun. It just felt so natural to write and perform my own stuff. And so in a sense, I'm still doing that now because I'm writing, you know, you know, I'm writing stuff and then I go on tour and I perform it. Mm -hmm. And so it's really strange how that all worked out. But I had a a very circuitous route to writing a book. It took me 10 years to write my first book in a sense of learning. I mean, I have a PhD in playwriting and I knew jack squat about writing after I finished that degree because, you know, (laughs) it's theoretical. It's just about argument and reading and it just it hadn't sunk in. And I got married when I was 27 and I left academia, I left teaching and I was like, you know what? I want to write a novel, a memoir. I want to write something. And it took me five years to learn how to write as funny as I was in real life. You know, like I'm a naturally funny person. If I'm no matter where I am, what I'm doing, I'm going to make jokes. I'm going to find a funny thing to say. And, but But getting that onto the page and making it feel like me, that took forever. That took five years of getting up every day at 5 a.m. and writing for three hours before work. And then once I figured out how to do it, then I had to have something to say. I had to like, well, what am I talking about? What am I writing about? Am I writing silly short stories? Am I writing the great American novel? And so it took five more years to realize that I needed to write about that fish out of water experience of my childhood and write about my dad. And once I got that, once I had the comedy voice down, and once I knew, once I had a topic and a subject, and I think those two things form what you call the writer's voice. What are you talking about and how are you saying it? And once I had those two things, my career really took off from there. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Oh my gosh. Amazing. Well, I obviously have to go back now and read that book. I'm like a now a lifelong fan. Has this well, been, you. has this book been optioned by the way? I think it would be a good movie. It has not been optioned yet. Uh, I've had conversations with three or four producers. There's a challenge, you know, is it a TV show? Is it a film? I think it's a TV show just because it feels so episodic. Mm-hmm. Feels like maybe Maybe it's three seasons because the story has kind of three distinct parts, an act one and a two and a three. So I'm playing with that. I mean, I, I, because of my background in, in script writing, I did write a screenplay for my first memoir. I've thought about doing that, but I really want to write a novel. So I'm really torn right now. Do I work with one of these producers to adapt this into a show or do I just, you know, write the next book? And because I'm a working dad, you know, with, I've got a full-time job at a university and I don't have time to just do both. I know writers who that's all they do and they can do both, but I can't. So I have to choose very wisely. You could also have someone else adapt it. Yeah. I mean, I think once the book, I mean, obviously it comes out this month in June uh, and technically we're recording this on a Monday. The book comes out tomorrow on a Tuesday. So I think I'm expecting option offers over the next month or two, but I definitely want, if it does get optioned, I would like to be a part of the writing team just because I obviously love to write and I'm not at all afraid of uh, of that medium. Amazing. Well, my husband has a production company and I was like, you have to option this. So I'll, <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll try to figure out if it's optioned. Anyway, I mean, not that it's hard to figure out, but can I read a couple of things I thought were so funny? Sure. Or I like I have all these um, dog-eared, so I'll just like randomly pick a few passages. Here, I'll just read a couple of things, which I don't know if these were what I even thought was funny to begin with, but I'll read them anyway. At its best, comedy provides a check on power and pride, keeps you realistic about how good you don't look in those jeans, and I do believe that our shared love of laughter kept us both humble. But man, funny people sure can make a marriage lonesome. I began to worry that my wife and I were just ordinary assholes, doing 25 to life for crimes of the heart. I avoided her in the house, little eye contact, zero touching. So obvious was her disgust. While she chose to share news of her aneurysms with others, anybody who'd listen and not always mock. Chad, for example, he was out there, a text away. I think most divorces are merely a failure of imagination. You lose the capacity to conceive of a happy future. The two of you are like a wet pair of matches, hardly able to get the fire back. Why keep trying? The world is full of dry matches. All you need is a new one. Tell me about that passage, what you were thinking, writing, how you feel about it. You know, marriage, it's so hard. You know, it's like what we were saying that, you know, I mean, if you're, what makes a marriage a marriage is the promise to stay married. The vow that you take at the altar or, you know, under the beautiful oak tree in the outdoor wedding, wherever you do it, that you, you take a vow if marriage was about feelings and if marriage was easy, you wouldn't have to vow. You don't have to take vows if something's easy. Like you don't have to vow to eat all the popcorn at the movie theater. You don't have to take a vow to eat the chocolate that you that you got for Halloween. 
You take vows because whatever you're promising to do is going to be hard. And so you make a promise in front of your people. And you're like, I know this is going to be hard. And I promise all of you people. That's why you have to have, even if you're getting married by a justice of the peace, you got to have a witness. Somebody who's like, all right, I'm hearing you. And the witness is usually somebody that you know and love and care about. You take vows because things are hard. And, you know, we know this in theory, but when you get married, you don't always like your spouse. And you can think of it in like, your spouse becomes your greatest enemy because you you know everything terrible about them. You see them at their worst. You see them metaphorically and literally naked, and you see all their faults metaphorically and literally. And so it, but then all these other beautiful people walking around, you don't you haven't seen their faults. They look beautiful, they look nice, they look perfect. Whereas you're looking at your spouse and you've seen everything. So it's the difference between, you know, it's like to use the car, you know, analogy. You've been driving this crappy car now for 10 or 15 or 20 years and you know that it's a terrible car and you know all its weird sounds and what it doesn't do right. But then every other car that passes you on the street just looks so nice. And you're like, man, if I had that car, my life would be so much better. And so, you know, that passage that you read, that whole idea of like, you know, we were two wet matches and all you need to light a wet match is a a dry one. And all these other people out there, um, you know, my wife had this affair in part because, you know, she worked from home and this man worked from home. She was a stay-at-home mom, and he had a, a business where he he worked from home most of the time, and our houses were right next door to one another. And so, in a sense, he was like her work husband. You know, everybody, if you work in an office, you've got like your your work spouse, your work wife. You flirt, you talk, and it's so electrifying because you don't have any negative history with that person. You haven't had to pack for vacations with that person. You've not had to grocery shop with that person. They're so likable because you don't know jack squat about them. And that's what this man was for my wife at some point. When things got bad for us and every marriage has its ebbs and flows, you have good years and bad years. You have really bad years and really great years. And during the really bad years, Here was this man who she was friends with. They got along. They laughed together. You know, again, you know, her work husband in a sense. And he looked like happiness. He looked like joy. Well, she can get the fire with him because he's a new guy. She couldn't get it with me. And it takes work to do it with your spouse, to to get that fire back, to fall in love again. Man, it takes so much work. Like, it's continual, whether it's therapy or just intimacy, time spent together, going on a walk, trying to learn their love languages. It's exhausting. So yeah, it's, it was hard. It, it feels impossible. You know what I said, it's a failure of imagination. You really just, I tell, I say in the book, you have to imagine wanting to divorce your spouse, like do it now. Imagine hating something about them. and, And then imagine trying to stay married anyway. Imagine trying to find what you love about them. And for me, the secret to fall in love again with my wife, and I think for her to fall in love with me, was to look in the mirror and see how broken and awful I was. It's so easy to point the finger when you get betrayed. Like, I've done a lot of bad things, but I have never done that. I felt so self-righteous when I found out about the betrayal. And that self-righteousness was poison. Because it made me hate my wife. It made me elevate myself to this morally superior status. 
And one of my good buddies said, you know, in in cases that he's a therapist, he said, in cases like this, if a marriage is ever going to reconcile, then both spouses have to own their part in it. And he wasn't saying I caused the affair, but he was saying it might be useful to look in the mirror and just see what it might be like to be married to me. Think about what it's like to be married to you, Harrison. And I thought about it. I made a long, long list, as you saw in the book, a whole chapter about it. And it was not pleasant. There was some humor in it, but it was not I say it's like looking in one of not just like one of those nice mirrors at the luxury boutique, but it was more like looking in one of those mirrors at Walmart that don't lie about what you look like, the terrible lighting. You really have to look at yourself and decide, wow, I am kind of a jackass. And I believe every human being on earth is a jackass of one form or another. And once you realize your faults and how hard it is to be married to you, (laughs) it's much easier to forgive. It was so much easier to look at my wife and be like, damn, like, I see why our marriage might be something she would want to escape. Even I mean, I didn't abuse my wife. I didn't emotionally, physically. I wasn't an addict. I'm not an alcoholic. But I have so many frailties and so many cracks and imperfections. uh, And I made it. I made our marriage. I contributed to making our marriage a burning building that somebody might want to get out of. I mean, even the ability to take stock the way that you did in the book, and the whole book is sort of a taking stock, right? Deep dive analysis. Like so many people are not capable of doing that. They, they're like, for, especially for any narcissists out there, like you, you're physically, you, you, not physically, but emotionally incapable of, of seeing any wrong in yourself or, or even it's just so, it can be so damaging to your sense of self to dive as deep as you did into who you are, how you contributed, and yet look at the outcome. Like, I feel like this is such an advertisement for, you know, just laying it all, laying it all out there, the the good, bad, and the ugly. So you, you interwove all of your faith in here and you had that one just so, such a brilliant chapter where you write as if you're writing the Bible, like, and the Lord, whatever. Oh my God, it's so funny. But it wasn't just that. It's that, you, you know, you you founded a, a church and played the drums and include faith really every in, in every story. It's it's a, a critical sort of part of the book, which which I just would love to hear your your thoughts on. I mean, you don't, and this is another way I feel like the book is unique in that there isn't often this, you know, another storyline, which sort of follows, which always interweaves the, the faith. I'm sorry, I like cannot make a sense this morning. But anyway, I think you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Well, when, I mean, I've always wanted to write, uh, I mean, I grew up in the church. I'm a Christian. I'm terrible at it. I'm terrible at every kind of Christianity. I'm terrible at the the really sweet, gentle, like Jesus is a kitten that you hold in your palm of your hand and he loves you and you love him. I'm terrible at that kind of Christianity. I'm terrible at the righteous, you know, right-wing Christianity where Jesus carries a flamethrower. Like I don't fit anywhere. I'm terrible at it, but I've grown up with it. I grew up in a very conservative Southern church and have bounced around. Had I mean, I studied some theology in college. I actually was enrolled in seminary for about a week before I decided to study playwriting. And I'm just, you know, because theology and religion are just, it's one more form of human curiosity. Why are we here? Did something make us? If so, why did they make us? What are we supposed to be like? What is a good life? I mean, those are all the questions that 
anybody's asking in a TED talk and anybody's asking in a sermon and every spiritual religious book from the Tao Te Ching to, to the Old and New Testament, they're all asking those same questions. Like what, like life is effed up. What are you going to do about it? Why is it effed up? And what are you going to do? And so when anything blows up in your life, you're going to, you're going to ask big questions. What am I to do now? And you're going to look around for wisdom everywhere. You're going to, you're going to Google, you're going to look for wisdom on the internet. You're going to look for wisdom in Instagram. You're going to look for wisdom when you talk to your friends, you're going to desperately need wisdom. And so for me, this experience compelled me to be like, okay, it was like, imagine religion. I mean, I was like, we have this thing, like some churches have this thing called Bible Bowl, where you're like, it's like Bible trivia, like Jeopardy for, you know, Christian nerd kids. And I did all that. I have a trophy of a Bible Bowl trophy <laughs> from like sixth grade. Because I mean, they're like, I, I love to read. And like, that was the coolest thing about church is like, we're reading like, you know, like Middle English poetry in the King James Bible and talking about, I mean, it was like English class. We were talking about what this, what these interesting stories meant, and what do you think is going on here? I mean, it's all you do in English class. You're reading really old poetry and talking about it, and it's most of it's weird and confusing. That's exactly what Sunday school was. So I was fascinated by that as a boy, and you know, I liken faith to like a a, a shed in your backyard where you know you've got all these two interesting, weird tools. And you're not quite sure what they're for, but they're really old and interesting and cool. And I'd studied all these religious ideas uh, all my life in church and school and college and books that I read. But when my life blew up and I was looking for wisdom, I was like, well, let's see what the fucking Bible has to say about this shit. I mean, I was at the end of my rope. And I so I was like, you know what? I want the King James Bible. I want the good stuff. I don't want any of these modern translations. I went straight to it. And rereading the Bible from cover to cover in the midst of sort of the explosion of my marriage was very insightful. And I read it with completely different eyes, not the eyes of a dogmatist or, you know, when somebody's preaching from the Bible, they they have a lot at stake and they're trying to to prove something. But I, there was nothing left for me to prove or be proven to. I was just reading and trying to decide like, why does this book exist? It's existed for so long. It's got to have some wisdom in it. And it was like I had wandered into this my backyard. My house is falling apart. And I wandered into my backyard. And I find this shed full of tools. And I was like, wait, <laughs> tools do something. I can do something with these tools. Grace, forgiveness, love, wisdom. Like, do I, do I hurt this man? I felt such an urge to vengeance. Do I do that? Do I love him? It says, love your enemies. Do I have to love this guy? Like, how do I do that? That seems insane. And so I was like, you know what? I'll give it a shot. And so <laughs> I read, and as you saw in the book, it's it's. Uh, I make a lot of fun of what you find in the Bible and yet try to divine some wisdom from this story. Not specific, do this, don't do that but more of a sort of 40,000 foot transcendent wisdom of how, what is anyone's duty in this life? What is your duty? And that was really helpful to me. Amazing. Thank you so much. I had a million other passages that were so funny that I want to like, I don't know, post on my bulletin board or something, but 
Thank you for the conversation. Good luck with your launch tomorrow. I'll be cheering for you. This book is so good. And I want to shout it from the rooftops. So congratulations. You are so sweet. Thank you so much for having me on. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. See you. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 